Alright Wrestling with Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton here with episode number 119, Standing in the Confessional Corner. This week we're going to look at paragraphs 61 through 85 of Article 4 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, particularly about justification by faith in Christ, and that only through faith in Christ can we receive the forgiveness of sins. So the editors of the Concordia, the reader's edition of the Lutheran Confessions, break this section up that we're looking at this time into two parts. Uh, first one is paragraph 61 through 74, entitled, Faith in Christ Justifies. So we look at paragraph 61 to 63. In the first place, lest anyone think that we speak about an idle knowledge of history, we must state how faith is obtained. Afterward, we will show both that faith justifies and how this ought to be understood. We will also explain the objections of the adversaries. Christ in the last chapter of Luke commands that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name. The gospel convicts all people that they are under sin, that they are subject to eternal wrath and death. It offers for Christ's sake forgiveness of sins and justification, which is received through faith. The preaching of repentance which accuses us, terrifies consciences with true and grave terrors. In these matters, hearts ought to receive consolation again. This happens if they believe Christ's promise that for his sake we have forgiveness of sins. This faith, encouraging and consoling in these fears, receives forgiveness of sins, justifies and gives life. For this consolation is a new birth in spiritual life. These things are plain and clear and understood by the pious. They also have testimonies of the church. The adversaries cannot say how the Holy Spirit is given. They imagine that the sacraments give the Holy Spirit by the outward act, ex opere operato, without a good emotion in the one receiving them, as though indeed the gift of the Holy Spirit were a useless matter. A couple of things that come out at us in these first paragraphs is this definition of the gospel seems to ring completely counter to what we learned in confirmation class. We talked about the gospel giving us the story of our salvation, not that the gospel convicts us that we are under sin. But Melanchthon is using gospel in the broad sense. Gospel in the fact of Good Friday, as we celebrated last week. That the gospel talks about the forgiveness of sins, but we must also know what we are being forgiven of if we are to receive that forgiveness. So Melanchthon properly says that the gospel convicts all people that they are under sin, that they are subject to eternal wrath and death. It offers, for Christ's sake, forgiveness of sin and justification. So, Gospel in the broad sense covers both what we consider law and gospel in the narrow sense. And then we move into paragraph 63, the last sentence of that paragraph that brings about the first mention of numerous mentions in Article 4 and Article 12 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession of the Latin phrase ex opere operato, which means the work by the work being worked. So that simply by doing the action, things automatically happen. 
So therefore, they talk about the sacraments give the Holy Spirit simply by going through the motions, which any pious person can gladly attest that, no, there are a lot of people that just go through the motions that definitely do not have the Holy Spirit given to them. And we talk about this for the next many pages in Article 4, but also, again, it gets picked up many times in Article 12 on repentance. So we move into paragraphs 64 to 70. We speak of the kind of faith that is not an idle thought, but that liberates from death and produces a new life in hearts. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This does not coexist with mortal sin. As long as faith is present, it produces good works, as we will explain later. About the conversion of the wicked or about the way of regeneration, what can be said that is simpler and clearer? Let the scholastics from so great a host of writers produce a single commentary upon the sentences that speaks about the way of regeneration. When they speak of the habit of love, they imagine that people merit it through works. They do not teach that it is received through the word. They teach just like the Anabaptists teach at this time. But God cannot be interacted with, God cannot be grasped, except through the word. So justification happens through the word, just as Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Likewise, he says in 10.17, faith comes from hearing. Proof can be derived even from this. Faith justifies because if justification happens only through the word, and the word is understood only by faith, it follows that faith justifies. There are other and more important reasons. We have said these things so far in order that we might show the way of regeneration and that the nature of faith, what faith is or is not, about which we speak, might be understood. Now we will show that faith justifies and nothing else. Here in the first place, readers must be taught about this point. Just as it is necessary to keep the statement, Christ is mediator, so is it necessary to defend that faith justifies. For how will Christ be mediator if we do not use him as mediator in justification, if we do not hold that we are counted righteous for his sake? To believe is to trust in Christ's merits, that for his sake God certainly wishes to be reconciled with us. Here is a similar point. Just as we should defend that the promise of Christ is necessary apart from the law, so also we must defend that faith justifies. For the law cannot be performed unless the Holy Spirit is received first. It is therefore necessary to defend that the promise of Christ is necessary, but this cannot be received except through faith. Therefore, those who deny that faith justifies teach nothing but the law, both Christ and the gospel being set aside. Lutherans believe in a living and active faith, because only a living and active faith can liberate from death and produce new life in the heart. Anything else, as he says at the end of paragraph 70, teaches nothing but the law, sets aside both the gospel and Jesus himself, bringing Christianity not to being Christianity anymore, but being a religion of man and our works and our doing and our merits, which is completely against what the gospel teaches through the word. So teaching the law only is not good. You must have the law because the law gives us the ability to then give the gospel. 
but you can't negate the gospel. You can't leave it out and still have good, solid preaching because it will always be lacking. We move on into paragraph 71 and 72. When it is said that faith justifies, some perhaps understand it to mean that faith is the beginning of justification or the preparation for justification. Then it is not faith through which we are accepted by God, but the works that follow. So that dream that faith is highly praised because it is the beginning. For great is the importance of the beginning, as they commonly say, the beginning is half of everything. They speak as if one would say that grammar teaches they speak as if one would say that grammar makes the teachers of all arts because it prepares for other arts. In fact, it's one's own art that makes everyone an artist. We do not believe this about faith, but we hold properly and truly we are for Christ's sake counted righteous or are acceptable to God through faith itself. To be justified means that just people are made out of unjust people or born again. It also means that they are pronounced or counted as just. For scripture speaks in both ways. So we wish to show this first. Faith alone makes a just person out of an unjust person. In other words, that person receives forgiveness of sins. In this, we talk about faith giving justification. That it is the entirety of it, not just the beginning. Not that we're given faith and then our justification is everything else that we do. This can be seen in multiple different ways using football analogies. This could be that faith in Christ brings us up to the one yard line with just one yard to go to get the to the end zone of justification and salvation. And that all we have to do is do enough works to get through that last yard. The other side of it is that faith gets us to the one yard line on the other side of the field. And then that our justification is a lifelong process of getting the other 99 yards down the field. Both are wrong because both require us to do the work of getting justified. Us earning our own salvation when salvation clearly is said over and over again in the Bible, is a gift of God. And this is where Melanchthon goes on in paragraphs 73 and 74, finishing up this section on faith in Christ justifying. The term alone, sola, offends some people, even though Paul says in Romans 3, 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He says in Romans 3, 24, justified by his grace as a gift. If the exclusive term alone displeases, let them remove from Paul also the exclusives freely, not of works, it is a gift, and so on. For these also are exclusives. It is, however, the notion of merit that we exclude. We do not exclude the word or sacraments, as the adversaries falsely charge against us. We have said earlier that faith is conceived from the word. We honor the ministry of the word, but, conf but confidence in the merit of love or of works is excluded in justification. We will clearly show this.
the Roman theologians continually derided Luther and his translation of Romans, especially verse chapter 3, verse 28, of inserting the word alone, that it is by faith alone, apart from works. And this could be said of Luther, but on the other hand, what does it mean that it is by faith apart from works, if it is not faith alone? Because he doesn't go on to say faith plus something else. And so the idea that we merit forgiveness of sins by our love will have a long discussion on that as this begins that topic throughout Article 4 and then Article 5 as it is brought about in the Concordia, the Reader's Edition. But they focus on the fact that love and good works follow after faith. They are required to have faith first. As Hebrews says, it is impossible to please God without faith. So now we have this question. Faith in Christ justifies. Okay, that's great. How do we obtain faith? And how do we obtain the forgiveness of sins? That is what we are actually looking for when we come to church. And that's where we pick up with in paragraphs 75 to 85. And we'll look at 75 to 78 right now. We think even the adversaries acknowledge that the forgiveness of sins is necessary first in justification. We are all under sin. Therefore, we reason as follows. To receive the forgiveness of sins is to be justified, according to Psalm 32.1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. By faith alone in Christ, not through love, not because of love or works, we receive the forgiveness of sins, although love follows faith. Therefore, by faith alone, we are justified. We understand justification as the making of a righteous person out of an unrighteous person, or that a person is regenerated. So we have this idea going all the way back to Psalm 32 and David talking about the forgiveness of sins is justification. Forgiveness only happens because we are justified. Whether it is in the act of having the forgiveness given to us at that point, or if it is coming back through the absolution and giving us that forgiveness because we have been justified through Christ's blood. And he continues on with the explanation of the logic that the reformers had throughout the Apology, the Augsburg Confession, and everything else they wrote about the doctrine of justification. We continue on in paragraph 79 through 81. It will become easy to state the minor premise that we receive forgiveness of sin by faith, not by love, if we know how forgiveness of sin happens. With great indifference, the adversaries dispute whether forgiveness of sins and infusion of grace are the same change. Being useless men, they did not know how to answer this question. In the forgiveness of sins, the terror of sin and of eternal death must be overcome in the heart. Paul testifies about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In other words, sin terrifies consciences. This happens through the law, which shows God's wrath against sin. But we gain the victory through Christ. How? Through faith, when we comfort ourselves by confidence in the mercy promised for Christ's sake. Therefore, we prove the minor premise. God's wrath cannot be appeased if we set our own works against it. For Christ has been set forth as an atoning sacrifice, so that for his sake the Father may be reconciled to us. But Christ is not received as a mediator except by faith. Therefore, by faith alone we receive forgiveness of sins when we comfort our hearts with confidence in the mercy promised for Christ's sake. Likewise, Paul says in Romans 5.2, Through him we have also obtained access and adds, by faith. Therefore, we are reconciled to the Father and receive forgiveness of sins when we are comforted with confidence in the mercy promised for Christ's sake. The adversaries regard Christ as mediator and atoning sacrifice for this reason. He has merited the habit of love. They do not encourage us to use him now as mediator. They act as though Christ were certainly in the grave. They imagine that we have access to God through our own works. They think that they merit this habit through these and afterward by this love come to God. Is this not to bury Christ altogether and to take away the entire teaching of faith? Paul, on the contrary, teaches that we have access to God, that is, reconciliation through Christ. To show how this happens, he adds that we have access by faith. By faith, for Christ's sake, we receive forgiveness of sins. We cannot set up our own love and our own works against God's wrath. So we have the idea that the adversaries do talk about Christ as the mediator, as the atoning sacrifice, but only for the initial habit of love. That, in their theology in the 16th century, then solidified in the Council of Trent after Luther's death, brings about truly a reburial of Jesus, a complete doing away of Easter and just leaving us at the end of the Good Friday service after the door has been slammed, sealing the tomb and signifying that Christ is dead. And that's the end of the story. But that is not the end of the story. Christ is still our mediator, our atoning sacrifice. It is not our good works, our love that we show to other people that bring us salvation. It is still the love of Christ given to us in his death and his resurrection. You can't have one without the other because without the other side, neither Good Friday nor Easter mean anything for us. Because without Easter, Good Friday is just, well, Jesus was just another guy executed by the Romans. Without Good Friday, why was he... Why does Jesus rise from the dead? What good is Easter if there is no Good Friday? Therefore, what good is love if there is nothing basing that love? And that base would be faith. And this is where he goes again, giving three more arguments over the next few paragraphs about Jesus being our mediator now, just as he was back at Good Friday, back at Easter. But it's not that his work was over then. His mediation continues still today, as we confess in the Creed, that he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. 
Going to paragraph 82. It is certain that sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ as our atoning sacrifice, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Therefore, Paul adds, by faith. Therefore, this atonement benefits us in this way. We receive the mercy promised in him by faith and set it against God's wrath and judgment. To the same effect, it is written in Hebrews 4, 14, and 16, Since then we have a great high priest. Let us draw near with confidence. The apostle tells us to come to God, not with confidence in our own merits, but with confidence in Christ as the high priest. The apostle requires faith. Jesus was brought forth as the propitiation for our sins, the payment to redeem us. And it is only by faith in that redemption, in that propitiation, that we can come forward and be in the presence of God, to be able to call him our father. No other way can that happen. He goes on in paragraph 83. Peter, we've talked about Paul, let's talk about Peter now. Peter in Acts 10, 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. How could this be said more clearly? Peter says we receive forgiveness of sins through Christ's name, that is for his sake. It is not for the sake of our merits, not for the sake of our contrition, attrition, love, worship, or works. He adds, when we believe in him. Peter requires faith. For we cannot receive Christ's name except by faith. Besides, he refers to the agreement of all the prophets. This is truly to cite the authority of the church. We'll speak again later on this topic when describing repentance. So, Melanchthon says, okay, we talked about Paul. Let's go to Peter, the guy that the Roman theologians look up to. What does he have to say about it? He says, to him, to Christ, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who does good works, who loves, no, who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. You cannot get it any more plain. And this comes from the very lips of Peter, the first pope. Just goes to show how far the Roman church had veered from even Peter's own understanding given it to us in the scriptures. The fourth point Melanchthon wants to make in this section gives, brings us to a close in paragraphs 84 and 85. Forgiveness of sins is something promised for Christ's sake. It cannot be received except through faith alone. For a promise cannot be received except by faith alone. Romans 4.16 says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. It is as though he says, If the matter were to depend on our merits, the promise would be uncertain and useless. For we never could determine when we would have enough merit. Experienced consciences can easily understand this. So Paul says in Galatians 3.22, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He takes merit away from us because he says that all are guilty and included under sin. Then he adds that the promise, namely forgiveness of sins and justification, is given. And he shows how the promise can be received by faith. This reasoning, derived from the nature of a promise, is the chief reasoning in Paul and is often repeated. 
nor can anything be devised or imagined by which Paul's argument can be overthrown. Therefore, let no good minds allow themselves to be forced from the conviction that we receive forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake through faith alone. In this they have sure and firm consolation against the terrors of sin, against eternal death, and against all the gates of hell. Forgiveness only comes through Christ. That is the promise that has been given ever since Genesis chapter 3. From the very beginning of the proclamation of the gospel, it has been the promise that not if you're good enough, not if you love everybody around you, but the promise of the one who is coming to crush the serpent's head. That is the promise of salvation. That is what we have faith in, because that is what happened in Holy Week. That is what we celebrate for Good Friday and for Easter. That everything that the serpent could do to Jesus, he did, even killing him. But that was barely scratching the surface as if he had just bitten him on the heel. And that, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, is the point of Easter. That is the point of all of faith, is that the promise is given to us. And even when we promise among ourselves in a general way, not invoking God in the midst of it at all, but just simply promising each other things, it's the nature of a promise that the other person is going to keep it. And so Jesus has. But people want to take away that credit from him. And that's what we'll continue to be looking at throughout Article 4 and 5 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession as we stand in the confessional corner. That's it for this time. This is Pastor Doug Minton wishing you God's richest blessings and encouraging you to continue to listen to the Confessional Corner, the Digging Deeper, the Moments of Meditation, everything else that is available on this podcast as my humble attempt to help you to wrestle with theology today and always. Amen.